All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Acts. We're ready for chapter 6 and verse number 8. The book of Acts 6-8 is where we're going to begin today. Hey, um, let me throw something out there to you guys. When we um, first started serving the specialty drinks in the, in the coffee shop, and just in case you're not familiar, let me throw this out. But when you first come in, there's a coffee pot there. That's black. You can get cream and sugar and just regular coffee. That's free. Um, the, all the desserts and stuff on the other side are free. If you want a, a fancy coffee, an espresso, a latte, whatever they're serving, those are $4 for sale in the cafe. So um, we want to keep the coffee free if you want it. And then, you know, our heart was just this. So many times people would show up with a Starbucks, a Jana's, a, you know, they'd go and they'd spend four or six bucks at Starbucks or Jana's on their way here. So we say, well, just we'll do it here. You won't have to stop at Jana's or Starbucks on your way to church. Um, if you have like a certain drink that, you know, you normally drink or we don't have it or we're not making it, talk to Heather. That's Heather right there. Raise your hand, Heather. Talk to Pat. Talk to somebody in the cafe, and I'm sure they'll, they'll uh, figure that out for you. Or if you have a suggestion, something you want um, in, the, in the cafe to be made for you, you can ask them and see if you can make, they, they'll make that for you. Amen? All right, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 is where we left off last week. So the title of my sermon today is, It's All About Jesus. Everybody say that. It's All About Jesus. So Stephen, as we know, he's going to be um, giving a sermon in chapter 6 and 7, and he's going to be talking to the religious leaders. Now, initially, it's going to look as if Stephen is just rehearsing Israel's history, which he is. But listen, I want you to follow and understand what the position that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin are coming from. Where are they standing? And, and, and what is Stephen actually arguing against? And Stephen is going to tell him it's not a place, it's not a ritual, it's not a system, it's not a religion, it's not a spot, it's a person. It's. I got guests here, you guys from California. You're making me look bad. It's not a place, it's not a ritual, it's not a system, it's not a religion, it's not a spot, it's a person, it's. Jesus. Jesus. Very good. Hey, so listen, you know, we could all go home. I'm serious. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The, the Jews and, and to this day, the Orthodox Jews in Israel. How many of you guys would consider, don't even raise your hands, most of you, right, would consider yourselves patriotic? You know, I think we, we consider ourselves very patriotic people. We have pride in, in our flag and in our, in our United States of America, and we would stand and defend it. You have no idea what kind of national pride Israel had and has. It doesn't compare. It's on such a next level that, that because God showed up to them in so many miraculous ways for so many years, there's really a deep entrenched um, patriotism and pride in everything Israel for the Jew of, of Stephen's day, of, of this chapter that we're studying. And they believed that God had supernaturally appeared to them, that they were a chosen people, better and, and special above everybody else. They hated anybody that was a Gentile. They were very prejudiced in, in a lot of ways. Prejudiced against anybody. They wouldn't touch a Gentile. They would go into a ritual bath if their robe ran across the shadow of a Gentile. They said that Gentiles were dogs and they were meant for the fodders of hell. And there was so much pride in their ancestry and in Abraham and in Moses and in the miracles and in the things that they had, they, they had done. 
Well, Stephen is going to give a defense for Jesus. And, and in his defense, he's, again, as I read through this, I'm going to point out, and he's going to go back and he's going to walk through their history. And he's going to make a very, very powerful spirit-led argument that things were not as rosy and as perfect as they make them out to be. And they, and they had such a pride in the law and in Moses and all things the law. And they really believed that the adherence to the law was more important than, than, than the relationship with God. And they missed it. Jesus had said to them at one point, he said, you, um, you tithe of your mints and your cumins and you follow the letter of the law. But what you've missed is the weightier matters, mercy and love and justice. And, and so they were, they were religion in, in its very essence. We have that same battle in our world today, right? And I want to tell you, and I, I love to, to say this, and you know, I love it when people tell me, oh, you're a pastor, you're a religious person. And I tell them, I hate religion. I do it for shock value because they, they don't understand what that means. You know, but you guys understand what that means. Religion is the enemy of the gospel. Religion is a system of man trying to earn his way to heaven, trying to earn his way into God's grace. Listen, God loves you because he loves you. You can't earn it. You can't do anything more. You can't do anything less. How do you make God love you more? You can't. God says, if you make your bed in hell on there, neither height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of God. How can you make God love you any less? You can't. You can't make him love you anymore. He refuses to love you any less. But he loves you because he loves you. And we don't come to church. We don't pay tithes. We don't do these things so that God will love us. We do it because he already loves us. And that's the difference in religion and relationship. Religion says that I, I have to follow the rules so that I'll please God. Relationship says God is already pleased. God has already done so much for me that I, I want to bless God. God died on a cross for me and he rose again the third day. And, and because he loves me and because his grace is an ocean, I want to respond to his grace by giving and by showing up and by relationship, and hanging out with other Christians who love Jesus and who are doing the same thing. And I want to be involved in corporate worship, and I want to serve God in any, any way I can to tell other people about Jesus and to serve my community of Christ followers. And we do those things not so that he'll love us, but because he loves us. Amen? So again, Stephen, to catch this back in context, and then we'll get into it. I am going to do a little longer introduction today on purpose, so I'm not going to apologize for that. I always apologize when I do long introductions, but um, purposefully so. Now, I want you guys to know that there's two things that go hand in hand to your Sunday morning experience. You guys ready? When, when I teach and when I, when I try to keep it in context and I prepare and deliver a sermon, that is part of it. It goes hand in hand with you coming prepared. Somebody say prepared. prepared. Anybody take a wild guess how you come prepared? You just simply read what we're studying on Sunday mornings. So read a little before, read what we're studying, read a little bit after. And each week you come having pre-read what we're studying, it'll really begin to make sense. The Bible will really begin to open up to you. And it'll really enhance the way you understand. Do you, do you know that the, of, of all the, the teaching styles are called modalities, right? Different ways that people learn different ways that people retain um, information. Do you know what the least effective 
method of teaching is for retaining information? What I'm doing right now. <laughs> Lecture teaching. 5%. You retain, I don't know how they know all this stuff, 5% of what you of what you hear in a lecture. 10% more if you for what you read. So reading it and hearing it, we've got up to 15, and then you add illustrations and different things. And so we, we try to do our best, and we have the Holy Spirit too. So um, And it's the Word of God that's the power anyway, not in me. But in, in this particular event that we're going to study today, Stephen is... Um, is going to tell again the Jews. You guys remember Paul's argument through Hebrews? We just studied it. Um, basically, the argument all through Hebrews that we talked about, hopefully somebody remembers. Jesus is better. That was the argument. You guys remember that? Say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And, and that's kind of what Stephen's going to say here all the way through. And he's going to say, you guys missed it. Look at your history. You missed it here. You missed it there. And he's pointing out to him, showing him through history and all these things they take pride in. And all of these things that they think were so great. And you say, no, they weren't really that great. You missed it. You threw Joseph in a hole. You missed it. The brothers missed it when they went down. They didn't even know who he was. They missed it. 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 You think that um, Israel is so great and all these things. You have all this national pride. Well, God called Abraham out of Iraq. He wasn't even in Israel. And on and on and on. As he's going to point him out, we'll point him out as we go through. Now, um, just the last little thing to intro. I said we're going to do a little longer intro today. This is a concept I want you guys to catch. We, we've talked about it before, and I don't really know how to put it in terms, but one of the things is that people say the early church that we're studying now. Now, when I say the early church, know this. That, that term defines Jerusalem in the first century in the book of Acts. When you get to Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and these other churches that Paul started, that's not, that was part of an early church or the early beginnings of church plants. But that's the, when we use the term early church, we're specifically talking about what Paul and John started in Acts chapter 2 when they preached and 3,000 got saved. The Lord was adding to the church daily. Thousands more were being added um, on a regular basis. The church was exploding at least 8,000 um, men alone at this point. So in the early church, there's oftentimes a sentiment in church that we need to follow or we need to be the early church. And I've told you guys that that's a mistake. We cannot be the early church. We're not supposed to be the early church. We, we identify more with Paul in Acts 17 when he's preaching to Epicurean philosophers on Mars Hill where we are today than, than first century Jerusalem and 100% Jewish church congregation. The other reason why we can't be the early church is because there's so much information that we don't know about the early church. So how can we do what the early church did or be the early church? We don't know how they met. We don't know how they conducted their services. There's so much information that's lacking. Now, now don't get me wrong. Listen, this is where I, don't want, where I want to split hairs and know that it's a fine line. Because the early church is a template. Maybe not a model, because we can't model what they do, but it's a template that we can fill in the blanks. And we take staples from the early church. For example, does anybody remember what the number one staple is from the early church or where we start? Acts 2.42, everybody, Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42, you find the four pillars of the early church, and, and those are four pillars that we can live by. Fellowship, breaking bread, apostles' doctrine, and communion or, or prayer. Sorry, prayer. Prayer, the word, fellowship, and breaking bread together. 
Two of the four have to do with being a family and, and fellowshipping and loving one another. Those are staples. Those are things the early church was mighty and powerful. We'd love to emulate the miracles and, and the power that, that the early church had. But Jesus said of, the, of our church, you have a little power. And rather than boohoo the fact that we don't have a lot of power, I like to kind of be appreciative that we have a little power. And, and so, yes, we want, to, we want to do some things the early church did. We want to copy them to some degree, but we can't be the early church. We're not supposed to be. They sold, first of all, they sold everything they owned and brought it to the church. What if I told you guys, you have one week? Go and you leave the door today, sell everything you own, and bring it back next week with you. Nobody would show up. We can't be the early church in, in, in a lot of ways, right? And, and so again, that kind of fine line between we learn from them, we grow from them, but we're not them, right? We're unique and we're special. And, and God designed it. And I want to tell you this last thing, and then we will get into to where we are today. And I'll kind of move through it quickly once we get into it. Do you guys know that the local church is God's design? Listen, we didn't invent this. I, I've been all over the world, I think 12 different countries. And, and I've had the opportunity to be, to be at church in different places around the world. I was, in a, I was in a large Christian church in the Philippines. I was in a garage church in Mexico. I, I've been um, seeing churches online of different places from different missions that we do in Africa and different places. And, and do you know what church is like in the Philippines and in Mexico and in the Netherlands? It's pretty much what we do here today. They get together, they sing, they worship, they give. They fellowship, pastor preaches or teaches. They, they greet one another and they go home. They sing again. It, it's all over the world. So that, so that, you know, this is what God's people are doing all over the world. So that's comforting that, 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 that God designed the church. And it's God's will and it's by God's plan. And you guys know our heart, right? It's always the same. God, we just want to do what you want us to do. We don't, you know, if you want us to do it different, show us and we will. We just really want to follow the will of God in all that we do in our church and our services. And we want to lift the name of Jesus high as our vision. Every time I get up here and begin to preach a sermon, I, I ask God, God, help me show him Jesus. Help me show him Jesus. You know, the other thing that's a little bit kind of backdoor comforting about the early church, the early church had a lot of problems. They were not exempt from problems. Yeah, there was this great, powerful church, a move of God's spirit. They were not exempt from problems. They had um, hypocrisy in chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira died. They have the Hellenists and the Grecian women we studied last week arguing and complaining and dividing over the, the goods. They raised up seven men, one of them Stephen. We're going to follow today. The, 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 the beauty was the apostles said, we, we, we're going to prioritize and our, our vision, our goal for this church, 8,000 people, was we need to commit ourselves to praying in the word of God and teaching and equipping the saints. And that there's too much to do. We can't wait on tables. And it's not our call. And so thankfully, the apostles said, raise up other men. And that's what we do in our churches. We raise up men that God's gonna, and women that God can use to, to serve one another and love one another and function as a body. And they raised up seven men. We're going to study one of them, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, who started waiting tables. And, and that's usually the model for ministry. You start waiting tables somewhere and doing the little things. And God says, if you're faithful in the little things, I'll give you more. If you're faithful with, with little, I'll trust you with much. And one of them, um, we believe, and I'm not completely positive, but I think history tells us, and I could be wrong if I get to heaven and Nicholas is there, I'll apologize to him. But, but one of these seven guys here in, in, this, in this Acts chapter 6, he goes and starts a cult. 
he goes astray. What do you find in the church today? Christian leaders who go astray. You know, the same kind of problems. That same Nicholas there is, Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. They were lording over people. They were of a hierarchy, a church that you went to, and the leadership had to tell you what to do. You couldn't make own decisions for your life. You had to be placed under somebody in a discipleship thing. And they took discipleship to a whole new level. And they were lording over the people. And Jesus said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And that's probably him that started it. All right, so that brings us to verse number eight. And we're going to go through 68 verses. You guys ready? Yo, ye of little faith. Strap on your seatbelts. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freemen, Cyrenians, Alexandrias, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Everybody, verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. One more time. And they were not able to resist the wisdom which he spoke. Why were they not able to resist the, spirit, the, the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke? Because the Holy Spirit was with him and supernaturally coming on him. One of the things we're going to see is that the apostles relied on this many times in the Bible. Jesus said, um, do not worry about what you will speak or what you will say. In that very hour, I will send the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, and he will give you the words. And here Stephen shows up. I told you guys last week to be encouraged by this, to know that the presence of God in your life and your ministry is the most important thing. It's the only thing. It's the everything. Are things going to go well in your conversation with an atheist? Are things going to go well in your witness at your work? It all depends on one thing. Is God's presence with me? If God's presence is with you, guess what's going to happen? It's going to go good. You know, and I always ask God, be with me. God, be with me. Moses understood this better than anybody. And Moses had one of the most tough ministries that God has ever called anybody to in, in the task that Moses had. 120 years of life and ministry of leading 2 million people grumbling through the wilderness on a funeral march with the rebellion and all these things and, and an exodus. God finally calls Moses and he says, Moses, I need you to, to do this next thing. And Moses, he had already parted the Red Sea and 10 plagues in Egypt. And he says, God, I'll, I'll step out in faith. I'll go with you. He said, but God, I'm not going anywhere. I'll do anything for you. But I'm not going anywhere unless your presence go with me. God said, Moses, my presence will go with you. I love that verse. I read it like God's speaking to me. Your pre my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you. And when God's presence is with you, you can have this gift, this supernatural gift that Stephen had. And you know, when this comes, I don't think it, it's all the time that you have this amazing wisdom and spirit. But in moments, God will show up and he'll give you something supernatural like he did for Stephen this day. And then they secretly induced men saying, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and they brought him to the council. And they also set up or hired false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. 
What happens when God's presence is with you? Seriously. If God's presence is with you, people can see it. And when God's presence is really, really with you, there's a countenance that you have. What happened to Moses? Remember Moses, when he would go up on Mount Sinai and he would meet with the Lord 40 days and he would come down off the mountain? What what, what was the effect? His face would glow. At one point they had to veil his face because it was distracting people and they, you know, they they were going to, when his face stopped glowing, they would think differently of him. Why did, 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 was there something in Moses that glowed? What was glowing on Moses? It was only, right, the reflection of God. It was just God's, God beaming off of him through him. And listen, in your life, people said they'll know you. God, Jesus said they'll know you by your fruits. And there is a thing, it's called Christian countenance. And people can see it. They can see the love of God in your life. And this guy, man, he was, his face was shining. And you know what's going to be powerful? We're introduced here. I didn't mention it, but there's a guy named Saul that's present in all of these things that are happening in what we're reading right now. And he's going to hear this witness of Stephen. He's going to see Stephen exude the grace and the mercy of God as they're murdering him. He's going to see Stephen whose face shines like the face of an angel. And the number one impact on Saul's life in becoming a Christian, I believe, was this event um, and Stephen. And Stephen made one convert, a big one. He caught one fish. You only got to catch one fish if it's a really big one. I think it was, was it Billy Sunday, who was the Sunday school teacher, who had one kid in a Sunday school ask Jesus in their heart? That kid was Billy Graham. You only got to have one if it's a big one. And Saul here has one convert, and, and, and no doubt, without a doubt, the, the impact of, of Stephen's ministry changed Saul's life. And later in Acts chapter 10, God's really going to get a hold of his heart and he's going to become a Christ follower. And as you know, we're going to follow Saul, whose name is changed to Paul through the rest of the New Testament. And then in chapter 7, it says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And now here we start this sermon. About 55 verses long. It's, it's long. We're going to try to just get through it. But I've already highlighted a little bit so you'll know where we're headed. Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Iraq. The Bible says Mesopotamia. That's modern day Iraq. Before he dwelt in Haran. How many of you guys want to go on a Holy Land tour with me to Iraq? Yeah, right? (laughs) There's nothing holy about the land. I don't know. We might be able to find where Abraham was born. They said that... uh, uh, Saddam Hussein preserved the um, original Babylon that, yeah, you were there, you know, firsthand that, that he was preserving and he thought he was Nebuchadnezzar and that he was preserving what was historical Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar and, and they captured the Jews and what's Babylon in your Bibles, which is in modern day Iraq outside of Baghdad. And um, so it's in Iraq. And, and again, as we go through this, Stephen is pointing out that It all started, it wasn't even in Israel. (laughs) It was in Iraq. And then he said to him, get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. You know, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. And Abraham's life depicts that. It's a clear picture that that Abraham was a pilgrim who who traveled and followed God wherever he wanted. And your life is the same as you follow the Lord. You know, one of the things that Jesus said more, uh, more often than anything else to you and I, he said, follow me. And we're just supposed to follow him wherever he goes and wherever he leads in our pilgrimage. 
And then he came out of the land, verse 4, of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give him, when Abraham promised to give him, give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, highlight foreign land, and they would be bringing, and they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Where did that happen? In Egypt. And again, a reminder that, and he's going to say so much in the next, in the next uh, couple of verses that, listen, men, you have this pride in Israel. Do you realize that the nation of Israel was brought to a nation and really was born in a foreign land? You were 70 people when you went down to Egypt and 2 million when you came out. So for the 400 years that you were in bondage in Egypt is where really that you became a nation. And so again, he's pointing these things out to them. Do you, do you realize you guys, and I think this is a good reminder, that Jesus was a refugee in Egypt? We should be thankful to our Egyptian friends. If you have an Egyptian friend, you can thank them. Tell them I want to thank you that. That, that your country was was uh, allowed that my Lord and Savior to be a refugee there for a couple years. Maybe it gives us a little more sympathy to our, our refugee crisis and, and refugees, but Jesus was there, and Egypt biblically and historically has always played a big role. And in verse 8, he says, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. You know the funny thing about circumcision with Abraham when God first gave it to him? Abraham and all his men were adults. <laughs> Can you imagine coming to church that day? God spoke to me, church. We're going to do something special today for service. We're going to circumcise all the men. <laughs> Again, this will be the last Sunday to show up. And by the grace of God, right, the... The circumcision after that took place on the eighth day. You, you guys know you guys know about that, right? You probably do, but I'll tell you anyways. It's kind of interesting fact. But God prescribed that circumcision would happen on a on a on a boy on the eighth day. Well, science tells us that there's a, 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 a coagulant, a chemical, a protein in your body, K, I think it's called protein, K protein, that. Um, is, is specifically for healing in a coagulant. And, and it levels off when you're born at a certain level. And on the eighth day, it has this supernatural peak and it peaks to an uncanny level. And then it comes back down and is just regular the rest of your life. But on the eighth day, this particular K in your body peaks. And that's the day that God said that, the, that, the Jew, that they should be circumcised. And then he says, in verse number nine, and the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Everybody say, God is with me. And why was he with him? And delivered him out of all of his troubles. Do you believe that God is with you? Do you believe that God can deliver you out of all your troubles? Or, or maybe is God's hand too short? Maybe his ear is too heavy. Maybe his voice is too low that he can't speak. No. Is God a T-Rex? Little tiny arms and a big head? He can't take a selfie? Can't quite figure. He can get like his chin on his selfie? 
God's hands are not too short. The Bible says in Isaiah that God can reach you. That God is, you know, my favorite scriptures in all the Bible because it's so encouraging to me, that God is a present time, a present help in time of need. That means that no matter how bad you've been, no matter how much you've gone the other way, no matter how much you don't deserve it, if you're willing to come to God and ask him for help, he's going to give it to you. He's going to meet you right where you are and liberally he's going to help you and love you and serve you because the Bible says God is a present is a help in a present help in time of need. And I love that about the Lord. And here it says that he showed up and he's able to deliver them. And delivers us all out of trouble and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. Where was there no sustenance? In Israel. Again, he's pointing out that that God used Egypt to provide the grain. That in this famine, it wasn't Israel that had all the, the grain. Egypt had the grain. And that they again had to go down to Egypt to get the grain. But, but when Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent out our, our fathers first. You know, oftentimes I think people maybe don't understand or they forget how did Israel end up as slaves in Egypt? How did they end up building the pyramids or whatever they did as slaves in Egypt for 400 years? Well, this is the story. We have um, Abraham, who was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He was the first Jew, as we know him, the first Hebrew. And from Abraham, he had a son in his old age, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes or the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And, and Jacob and his 12 sons, they threw the second to youngest son, Joseph, in a pit because he was arrogant. And he came home one day and he said, Dad, or he said to his brothers, I had a dream. And you guys all bowed down to me. He said, all the sheaves bowed down to me. And they understood that to mean all of his siblings bowed down to him. And then he came in for dinner the next night. And he said, oh, I had another dream. And the, the moon and the stars, they bowed down to me too, which meant mom and dad. And now they're like, you're really crazy. And his dad would favor him because he was the son of Rachel, his favorite wife. And, and so he gave him a coat of many colors to Joseph. And the boys envied him because he was favored by his father. And so one day out in the field, they threw him in a ditch to die. And they took his coat of many colors and they dipped it in blood of animals. And they brought it back to their father and they said, do you recognize this coat? And he said, yeah, that's the coat of my son, Joseph. Surely he's dead. And one of the brothers, they, he saw a band of slave traders from Egypt coming by. And he talked the other brothers into pulling him out of the hole so he didn't die and let him go into slavery. And he went to Egypt and he became a slave. And he was bought by a guy named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife had a liking to Joseph and she kept trying to seduce him. And Joseph refused to sin against God and against his master Potiphar and have sex with her. So one day she had enough and she, 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 she um, grabbed Joseph by the towel and he ran out butt naked. Ran away from her to get away from the temptation and the sin. And she finally had enough rejection from Joseph because he wouldn't give in. And her husband Potiphar came home and she made up a story and said, Joseph raped me. And Potiphar would have killed him if he believed that Joseph really raped her. But Potiphar knew better. So instead he had him put in prison. And, and while he was in prison, the Pharaoh began to have nightmares and dreams. And, and they said, there's a guy in the prison that knows how to interpret dreams. 
And so Joseph interprets, interprets Pharaoh's dreams and, and, and Pharaoh decides there's nobody in all of Egypt that's as wise as this guy I just met in prison named Joseph. I want him to be my right-hand man and help me through these couple of years. And so God, through Pharaoh, raises up Joseph and this worldwide famine happens. And Joseph is in charge of all the grain that's available in the world. And his dad, Jacob, or Israel, and his 11 brothers are back in Israel and they have no grain. And so they have to go to Egypt. And so the dad sends 10 of the brothers to come down and they run into Joseph there in Egypt and, and he provides for them grain. And they go, back to, they go back to Israel and they come back a second time. And Joseph tells them while they were there the first time, they said, yeah, we have one more brother. Um, his name is Benjamin and he's at home with our dad. And he said, you guys are spies. And if you ever come back, if you, you better bring that little bro Benjamin to prove that you're not spies. Or I'll put you all in jail, kill you all, because you're lying to me. So he, he, they, they go home, and they, they live off the grain that he sent with them for a while, and they run out, and they have to go back. And they say, Dad, we've got to go back to Egypt. But that guy said, we cannot come back unless we bring Benjamin. And the dad says, I've already lost Joseph. I'm not losing Benjamin, too. He can't go. I'll die of a heart attack. I don't know what will happen to me if something happened to Benjamin. There's no way. And they said, Dad, this man said, if we don't bring him to prove our story, we can't go. So he goes back and they bring Benjamin. And you guys know the story. Joseph is seeing his brothers and he now is Egyptian. They don't recognize him. They missed it. And this is what Stephen is pointing out. You guys missed it. And guess what is happening today about Jesus, Stephen is telling us. You missed it. Jesus is your Messiah. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is your answer. And he's right before you. And just like time and time and time again through your history, you missed it. Your fathers missed it. These ancestors who you have such a pride in, they missed it. Which one of the prophets did they not kill? And you guys are missing it again. And Joseph's brothers come back for more grain. And Joseph loads them up with grain and he takes the silverware from the table and he puts it in Benjamin's sack and sends them back to Israel. And then he sends his army after his brothers and they stop him on the way and they said, Hey guys, why would you return evil for good? Why would you return good for evil and steal my master's silverware? By the way, a little side note. When you go to somebody's house, don't put their, their spoons in your pocket before you leave. It's not a Christian thing to do. Um, and they said, we would never, we would never do this. And they said, well, yeah, we're going to check anyways. And so they were, Joseph was setting them up and they looked through all the bags. And sure enough, in Benjamin's bag, the youngest brother, they find the silverware. And they say, we're taking him back. He's in trouble. And Joseph was testing his brothers. He wanted to see if they had changed at all or they were the same um, mean brothers that eventually were going to do something terrible to Benjamin. And he said, at least I'll take my little brother and have him with me. So he, takes, he sends the little brother, all come back with Benjamin. And he says, he only asked to bring Benjamin back. And he's like, what are you guys all doing here? He's the one that stole. And they said, man, we trade us for him. We, we could not go back to our father without Benjamin. And then they're speaking in Hebrew. He's only speaking in Egyptian. They don't know he can understand. And they're saying to one another, God is judging us because what we did to Joseph. And they're truly repentant and broken. And then they realize that he realizes they've changed. And then we have verse number 13. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. So he, he says, it's me, Joseph. And now the brothers, you guys know the story? They're, they're afraid. They're shocked. How did they not recognize him? 
He would have looked like an Egyptian, probably had one of those skirts on, no shirt, some funky makeup, hair, hair, you know, maybe one of Egyptian things on, and he spoke Egyptian, and who knows how many years had passed since they, they had thrown their little brother in this hole. But they're like, oh man, he's really going to kill us. And then Joseph makes one of the most profound and, and biggest statements in the entire Bible. Joseph looks at his brothers who are afraid now that Joseph's going to have revenge on them for what they did to him. And Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. And because of what you did and you intended it for evil, I ended up the most powerful man in Egypt so that now I can save Israel. And then Israel was sustained. Well, during this process, they all came down. They went back, they got the dad and all was there. And 70 of them came from Israel and, and lived with Joseph and his wife and his three kids, 75 in all, while Joseph provided. And then what happened is it says, a Pharaoh grew up who knew not Joseph. And eventually the nation of Israel began to grow in Egypt and they became so many that this Pharaoh was crude and harsh to him and made them slaves. And then 400 years later, God raises up Moses in the Exodus and the Passover. Amen? That's a history lesson. I got to do it, y'all. I know it's not the most exciting thing, but we got to go through it. You got to know it. And then in verse 14, it says, And Pharaoh sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt as he died, and, his fa- and he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for the sum of money, and the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham... The people grew and multiplied. Where? So again, that's a little poke from Stephen. Where did, where did the nation of Israel really grow and multiply? In Jerusalem? In the Sea of Galilee? In Egypt? Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. You've got to have original King James for verse 18. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our fathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God. And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was sent out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. When it says words and deeds... He was brought up in all the, he was the, 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 the son of the Pharaoh. So everything that Egypt had to afford, the greatest luxuries the world knew, Moses grew up the son of the king, who was a God king, the finest schools, the finest education. He drove a Lamborghini to high school, wore Gucci. He had it all. He had the best education. Somewhere, I don't know if it's history or if it's extra biblical writing somewhere, it says that Moses was also, he fought for his father in Egypt. And, and by the age of 23, he had won a battle and was a, was a proven warrior in the Egyptian army. And there's mention of Moses in the Bible of being a fighter and a warrior. But something we forget about Moses that as an Egyptian, he was also an accomplished warrior. And then at, and then at 40 years old, verse 23 Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren and the children of Israel. Hey, quick note. Moses is 40 years old. He was adopted as a baby by the Egyptians. How did he know he was a Hebrew? 
There, there was lots of things, but his mom, the way God worked it out is his own mom nursed him. When, when, when the Pharaoh's daughter found the baby, she walked over and she said, oh, a baby, do you want me to find a wet nurse for you? Yeah, sure. He went and got his mom. Didn't know, you know, brought him in. She said, well, she can wet nurse him for you. And, and, and so his mom got to pour into him and be there until he was weaned. And no doubt she instilled in him. And who knows, maybe growing up as an adopted child, he looked different and, and, his, and his mom and his dad just told him, hey, you've been adopted or we found you. And, and maybe there was no question in Moses' heart or life growing up that he was adopted. Well, at 40 years old, he, for the first time, he had this yearning to go and visit his people. He knew he was Hebrew. He knew that he was Jew. And so he went and he find him. And it says, in seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down and killed the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Guess what? As you folks don't understand, Stephen is saying. Stephen is preaching, right? Moses was a deliverer. God sent him to the people. And guess what? You missed it. You didn't realize that Moses was a deliverer. And you gave him a hard time. The next day he went out and Moses saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said, hey, guys, break it up. We're brothers. We don't need to be fighting. And they said, oh, what are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses realized that what he had done was known. He thought he had done it in secret. He buried the body. And so sure enough, he knew he was in big trouble when Pharaoh found out and the word was out. And so at this point, Moses has to flee. And at 40 years old, he ends up on the backside of the Midian desert as nobody, as a shepherd, which was a very lowly, not, um, you know, very, very low respected career and position. Was a shepherd, stinky shepherd out with the sheep for 40 years. Guess what God was doing to Moses for 40 years? He was training him and he was also reprogramming him from the 40 years he spent as Egyptian royalty. Moses says um, at the end of his life that he was the humblest person that ever lived. And we know that because Moses told us that about himself. (laughs) I'm the most humblest person that ever lived. He wrote that about himself. But God was retraining him. In verse 29, I talked about it. Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. Extra credit, what was his wife's name in Midian? Moses's. Somebody said it. Zipporah, very good. Zipporah. And verse 30, And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a burning bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, a voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers. I love this title of God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Joseph, of Joseph, of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You know, sometimes you can say the term God, and it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And I think the older I get as a, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, and you know, especially where I live, there are certain terms that just don't mean the same thing. You know, one of my kind of new terms now is I, I'm getting away from using the term Christian. Too many people use that term that don't mean the same thing I mean when I say I'm Christian. I like the term Christ follower. I think it's a little more accurate. And I think it kind of, again, has to separate us from a lot of folks. You know, even in, even in the Midwest, right? 
even in the Bible Belt. You, talk, you ask someone in the Bible Belt, are you a Christian? They could be the most heathen, pagan person in the world who has no relationship with Jesus. And, and, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm from Texas, ain't I? Christian is kind of like a nationality in some places. But it doesn't mean the same thing that we mean when we say we're Christ followers. So I don't know. I'm getting away from the term Christian a little bit. It's not a bad term. It's not a bad thing. I just don't think it means the same thing with some folks. So I like to say Christ follower. And then um, in verse 33, a few more minutes, you guys, and we'll be done. Then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. So you see the Lord say this a couple times in the Bible, and some cultures still have this tradition where they take off their shoes because um, whenever they enter a holy place because of that verse. And in verse 34, it says, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them, and now... Come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? Is the one God sent to be ruler and the deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush? And you guys missed it. Hey, you're getting it. Very good. And he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea in the wilderness for years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, listen, this is important, you guys, verse 37. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Famous prophecy in the Bible from Moses that Jesus would come. This is a prophecy about Jesus. If you ask the Jews today why they won't receive Jesus as their Messiah, and what they're looking for in Messiah, they'll quote this verse to you and they'll say, Moses said he's going to raise up a prophet like me. Moses was a regular man. Messiah won't be deity. He won't be the son of God. And they use this verse to reject the idea that that Messiah would be God, the son of God. Um, But it's a prophecy of Jesus. Hey, we're, um, so so more history, you guys, more of the same thing. when you get to verse 47, look at verse 47 because we've got we to gotta speed up. It says, but Solomon built him a house. So again, without going through it verse by verse on that part, let me tell you this. He's, he's now making the argument about their temple. Their temple was a, was a point of pride of, of who we are as, as God's people. We have this temple. So he's going to bring up the same point. Listen, it's not about a place. God cannot be held within the temple anyways. It tells you in the Psalms. God tells you in verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? That God's not going to fit in that tabernacle in the Holy of Holies as fancy as it is with the curtain that separates it and the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence resides. It's still not good enough. And, and that Jesus is better? Let's go with that. <laughs> Something. I don't care. Jesus is what? It's better. Jesus is enough. That, that it's about Jesus. It's not about a place. It's not about a location. It's not about a spot. It's not about a ritual. It's about Jesus. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. Who will save you? You know, not what will save you, not what will help you, not what will make you better. It's who will save you, who will help you, who will make you better. It's Jesus. Amen.
And now they're going to kill Stephen. So Stephen preaches this sermon, which is seven, a great history lesson in Israel's history, telling the Jews this group of 71, the Sanhedrin, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin plus the high priest, telling them that Jesus is better, telling them they missed it through their history. They have a history of missing the things that God was doing, and now they once again miss God's Messiah. And, and as a result, they're going to start acting like little children, and, and they're eventually going to kill Stephen for it, and he's going to become the first martyr of the Christian church. And again, don't forget the whole, the, the underlying thing that's happening here. There's a guy by the name of Saul who's watching all of this, and it's such a tremendous witness on his heart. Let's check it out, and then we are going to be done. Hey, let's have the worship team come up, close us in a song, so this will help speed me up as they're coming up. Verse 54 says, don't turn your Bibles up yet. Verse 54. All right. I'll keep preaching. I don't mind. All right, 51. My wife says, you have to read verse 51. Should I read verse 44 too? Just kidding. All right, 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So again, the same idea, right? They killed Isaiah. They killed all the prophets. They know it. They have a history. And Hebrews, he tells us and walks through the history of them rejecting and killing the prophets that God sent. And then when they had heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I do got to point this out. You can't teach this section without pointing this out. Whenever you see Jesus in this heavenly picture, he's always sitting at the right hand of the Father. In this particular case is one of the only places where you see. Someone once said, only where the, when, when Jesus is receiving the martyrs, the death of the martyrs, is he standing. And here, as he's receiving Stephen, he's standing at the right hand of the Father. Coincidentally enough, do you know why Jesus is always sitting at the right hand of the Father? Because it's done. I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's done. He said, Te Telestai, it is finished. And so the work is finished. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Although he does have a big construction project he's working on. I don't know when he does that. But he did say in John 14 that he was going to prepare a place for us. So he's, he's got a lot of that construction to do. I know that, uh, you know, we're sending him up materials all the time that the Bible says, right? And every time he gets a new two by four, he's got to go put it on your house. He's got to go fix up your bathroom, whatever you send him. Verse 56, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Did you hear that? Verse 57, literally, little kids. You are talking, but I am not listening. They didn't want to hear him. They, they plugged their ears and they ran at him because, why? Because they were cut to the heart because he just laid it out for them what's true. And the argument was, was so thorough and so correct. They didn't even want to try to be intellectual with him. You know what people do when they can't talk to you intellectually? 
You know what we do when we get beat intellectually? Every time, human nature, we start passing insults. When someone starts insulting you, they have nothing, nothing intelligent left to say. So when you start insulting somebody else, guess what? You just have nothing intelligent left to say. So, so they, they're, they're gnashing their teeth, they're plugging their ears, they're talking loud so they can't hear him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Jesus on the cross saying, Father, receive my spirit. Then they knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. I love it. He says the same thing that Jesus says again. He asked forgiveness. Now listen, they would have first thrown him off of a high place and let the impact um, do the initial damage on his body, maybe killing some folks. And if you live through the initial fall, then they begin to throw rocks at you, literally stoning you to death. When I say he got stoned, you guys think of something else. This is Old Testament stoning. This is like rocks. And, And they're throwing rocks at him. And I mean... He's already come from a fall. Sometimes they would dig a hole and they would stone this way. But in Stephen's case, they would have thrown him off of a high, high point and the impact would have started it. And then they would have begun to throw rocks at him. He's laying on the ground, maybe a broken back while they're throwing rocks at him. He looks into heaven. He sees Jesus standing there ready to receive him into heaven. And he begins to pray for those that are throwing rocks at him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Lord, receive my spirit. How how do you have the grace that he had at that moment not to be angry at those that have just broke your back and are throwing rocks at your face? Lord, kill them all. Not me, man. Listen, are you either? If If you're there and you're looking at Jesus in heaven, you'd be like, throw them rocks harder. Come on, hit me right here. Throw them faster. I'm getting ready to go see Jesus, right? And Stephen doesn't care. Like he, he looks up, he sees Jesus. And he's like, Father, forgive him. And he ultimately, he still has the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus. And even those that are killing him in the moment, he, he has mercy and grace for them. And he wants what's best for them. And I'll bet you, we know one key guy in all this moment that Stephen's decision and his witness works on because Paul gave his life and his heart to Jesus Christ and became the greatest Christ follower that's ever lived. But maybe there was others. Maybe there was others that gave their life to Jesus that day. Maybe there was others that the testimony and, and was so powerful. Not only this, check this out. The words that Stephen spoke were so powerful, but then also the reality of who he was and the actions demonstrated it was true. And there was a surreal power of the gospel being presented this day. I'm sure there were others that got saved. How could they have not? And maybe today in this room, there's somebody that needs to get saved. There's somebody that needs to ask Jesus in their heart to be their Lord and Savior. Let's, let's close our Bibles and stand together. I want to pray for you guys. And then we're going to have the uh, pastors and leaders up front. If anybody would like individual prayer. Prayer room will be open. If you um, want it, when you leave here today... If you leave here, you make a right, you'll head to the parking lot. 
you want to talk to somebody or you want some some special counsel or you want to be prayed over or prayed for or you know you need a bible they have some bibles back there they give you a bible when you go out of here you can make a left it'll go into the conference room and in there um, there'll just be somebody there that can pray for you and pray with you if you need prayer need individual prayer if you'd like to come forward and pray if you want to ask jesus in your heart to be your lord and savior i'm going to lead us all in a prayer and i just ask us all to pray out loud wherever you are and if it's you that god is speaking to and you say in your heart that yes to Jesus and surrender, God will come into your life, God will fill you with his Holy Spirit right now, and you'll become a follower of Christ. He'll forgive you of your sins, and today your destination will change from heaven to hell, as you will be brought out of the darkness and into the light. And it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of you saying yes to Jesus. And listen, if I asked you, all of you, are you going to heaven when you die? If your answer is, I think so, or I hope so, probably not so. Make sure your answer is, I know so. Yes, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. If you're not sure, it's a prayer away. Place your faith in Jesus. He came, he died on a cross to forgive you of your sins. He came to build a relationship with you and to build a bridge between you and God and to give you as a gift eternal salvation. And that's a free gift. You just have to receive it by faith. So I'm going to ask you guys to follow me as we pray. Pray out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I'm a sinner, like us all, in need of a Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come into my life. I say yes to Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day. I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Hey, this we're not done yet. You're not dismissed. We got one song. Worship the Lord. Spend some time with God. Come forward if you like individual prayer. Go into the prayer room if you want to if you want to meet with the folks in there to, to counsel and pray over you and with you. We love you guys. One song. Don't leave till it's over. Allow this last three minutes for God's spirit to move, please. If you're a believer in here, take this time to pray. Pray for somebody in your aisle. Pray for somebody in your area. Pray for your own situation. And just just a few minutes, children's ministry will make it three more minutes as we just seek the Lord together. Amen? Amen. Let's let's worship the Lord together.